Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim Garrity is off for the next few days. Alexander DeSanctis of National Review here in his place. Alexandra, always good to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be with you. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, and all of it is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. Much more on that in just a moment. And, Alexandra, let's look at our good martini. And as Jim and I like to say, if there's not actual good news for conservatives, we'll take Democrats fighting with each other. And that's what we've got today and with the story of Cory Booker and Pete Buttigieg, although it's important to point out that neither campaign was actually quoted in this story, but uh, it does seem to be uh, becoming an issue with uh, a lot of Booker supporters. Politico's got the story. One of the Democrats running for president is a youthful, former Rhodes Scholar who speaks more than one language and cut his teeth as a two-term mayor. The other is Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg's sparkling resume has been the subject of countless profiles, powering the South Bend mayor to the top tier of the 2020 field. Senator Cory Booker, however, hasn't received nearly as much attention and remains mired in the middle of the pack in recent polls. The similarities between their credentials and the disparity between how their campaigns have been covered on the campaign trail are frustrating Booker allies who question whether the media is giving the New Jersey senator a fair shot. couple different quotes here. First of all, South Carolina State Rep. John King, quote, he's at a disadvantage anytime he's not treated on the same playing level as all the other candidates. There should be a campaign where people start to question the process when there's not fairness, and especially within the media. Another one, a South Carolina-based strategist Antoine Seawright says, quote, what I hear from people is that they see the epitome of privilege, who uh, says that Buttigieg is, however, an excellent communicator. But they think both Booker and Julian Castro are just as cutting edge in terms of being the first for something like this. We also have a new poll out from the South Carolina Post and Courier, Charleston, I guess. Uh, Joe Biden running away with the state at the moment, 46 percent. Bernie is at 15 percent. Kamala Harris, 10 percent. Pete Buttigieg, 8. Same thing, Elizabeth Warren. Cory Booker down at 4 percent. And we'll dig into those numbers a little bit later in the conversation as well. But, Alexandra, what do you make of uh, Buttigieg getting the Beto treatment? He's kind of the flavor of the month or months, and uh, some of these other candidates can't get nearly as much oxygen. And uh, at the same time, how much are you enjoying the infighting? Oh, well, I'm loving it. And I mean, I think Democrats are going through something like what uh, Republicans went through in 2015 and 2016, albeit, you know, not quite as dramatic, perhaps because they don't have their version of Donald Trump. Um, But seeing this sort of infighting, if you've got more than 20 people running, you're inevitably going to have some of these sort of second tier people trying to elbow it out. But I think the problem for Booker is he's not even a second tier candidate. And he announced and just absolutely tanked. He never even had a moment in the spotlight. He never rose in the polls. He's just been very consistently kind of near the bottom of the pack, you know, obviously above kind of the sort of no-name people running, but he was never a breakout star. And I think that's why you're seeing Booker supporters trying to manufacture this story, trying to put his name next to Buttigieg to make some kind of conversation around it. He doesn't even belong, I don't think, in the same breath as Buttigieg. And it's not because there's some kind of media bias against him, although I, I would say the media does sort of love Buttigieg for probably mostly uh, superficial and not good reasons. Um, but Buttigieg is an appealing politician. He's an articulate guy. He's polished. He's, I think, kind of likable. I mean, I went to school in South Bend, don't like the guy's policies. I think he gets a lot of credit for things that he actually 
didn't accomplish. Um, but he is appealing and likable and has sort of a genuine kind of almost, I wouldn't say down to earth, but kind of a sort of nice guy demeanor. Booker's just seems very fake to me. And maybe that's just my read, but watching him in Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, for one thing, the guy just comes across like a fraud. Um, and so I think that's why he's tanking in polls. It's not because Buttigieg is somehow stealing the spotlight. You don't buy the Spartacus line? I mean, uh, that's not an authentic <laughs> position that he's taking here, comparing himself to Roman slaves? I mean, oh my gosh, even the way he phrased that, he didn't even say, I am Spartacus. He said, this is probably the closest thing I will ever have to a Spartacus moment. I mean, the guy's a joke. <laughs> Yes, and his Spartacus moment was uh, releasing things that had already been cleared to be released, I believe. And he claimed that uh, there were other things in there as well. And uh, every time he got called on it, no, 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 I'm breaking the rules here. (laughs) Very, very interesting. But let's go back to uh, the media for a second here because the media does – they love what's new. They love what's different. They love firsts. I know a couple of weeks ago, the longtime speaker of the Maryland House of Representatives passed away. And so then there was a scramble for who would be the next speaker. And for the longest time, it was, will it be the first African-American to be the speaker or the first LGBT woman to be the speaker? And so those two clashed and they couldn't come up with a consensus. And ultimately, there was a Twitter headline from a actual news outlet that said, uh, black woman elected speaker. And of course, whenever you see headlines like that, you just think, well, does this person have a name? And so <laughs> my question for you is how much of the media's fascination with Buttigieg is because he's got an impressive background, the Rhodes Scholar, the service to the country, uh, the fact that he does present his uh, points well, and how much of it is just that they are intrigued by the fact that he's gay? I think a huge part of it has to be attributed to the latter simply because, you know, as you said, there are these other candidates um, who are similar, have at least, you know, some of the same qualifications that he has on his resume. But I do think it's also kind of a, a whole package sort of deal. And that's for a lot of, you know, media profiles you do see gay in the first sentence. That's always the first thing. And, and uh, his partner is now, you know, such a focus in many of these stories talking about their life together and whatever else. So I think that is a big part of it, um, but probably not the whole story. Well, let's take a look at the uh, inner workings of this Post and Courier poll a little bit because I think it's got bad news for a lot of them because uh, in addition to the overall numbers, which I mentioned earlier, they broke it down by race. And among uh, white voters, it's Biden 38, Buttigieg 18, Sanders 16, Warren 11, Harris 9, Booker 2, and everybody else below that. Among black voters, it's Biden 58, Sanders 15, Harris 12, Warren 5, Booker 5. So Booker's not even doing well among black voters. And then Buttigieg is at zero, which I believe, Alexandra, is his exact odds of winning the nomination if he can't do a whole lot better with black voters in the Democratic primary. I'd have to think so. Yeah, that actually, it's sort of a surprising number, but it does kind of make sense. He's in that sort of young progressive lane where sort of the the woke voters um, like him and the woke media loves him, wants to write all these glowing profiles. But I think the average Democratic voter, not that appealing. And Biden obviously running away with the lead there. I think that says so much about where the Democratic Party is right now. Just their average voter is is not interested. I don't even think in, in socialism or Bernie Sanders, and they're not interested in performative wokeness. They just kind of want a normal Democrat espousing normal Democratic policies. Well, the good news for you, Democratic primary voters, is that you got a lot of options. The bad news is you don't really have any good options. Uh, The the better news for those of you running a business, though, is that you do have good options. And ZipRecruiter is the best way to find those options when you've got an important opening to fill. Because hiring is challenging, but there is one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. 
ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five, that's 80%, get a quality candidate through the site within the very first day. And right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T-I-N-I. ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. After all, ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. So there's smart ways to hire, and then there's just not smart ways to do other things in life, Alexandra. And that's where Code Pink comes in as we enter our bad martini here. Code Pink is famous for disrupting congressional hearings, particularly for anti-war protests. They popped up a lot, of course, during the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. I think they might have popped up a little bit uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings for some reason or another. But anyway, uh, now they've occupied the Venezuelan embassy in Washington. The lights went out at the embassy of Venezuela Wednesday night in Washington. This is according to Hot Air. The embassy's electricity was turned off by the local power company known as Pepco and the building's owners. The move is an attempt to oust the protesters who have occupied the premises for more than a month. How long will it be before members of Code Pink leave the building? The far-left group, known for bringing drama and theatrics to protests, ended their occupancy of the embassy, which began on April 10th at the invitation of the Maduro government officials. Apparently, the group prefers the creature comforts of electrical service and water, given that this is the situation that Venezuelans have to cope with every day at the hands of Nicolas Maduro. Code Pink's complaints ring hollow. So Code Pink tweets out on May 9th, Secret Service and D.C. authorities have turned off water and electricity to activists. D.C. residents besieged inside the Venezuelan embassy in the Georgetown neighborhood. This is a dangerous situation and totally illegal, shameful, and unacceptable. Marco Rubio, finding the irony, says in support of the Maduro regime, Code Pink has illegally occupied the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. They are upset that electricity and water has been turned off. Now they know what life is like for the people of Venezuela under Maduro. So, Alexandra, the irony is pretty rich here. Code Pink is pretty much uh, a menace across the board. What do you make of uh, what we've seen here in the past few days? I think this is absolutely appalling. I wasn't terribly familiar with Code Pink. I missed most of the, um, you know, wasn't paying attention to the Iraq war. I was pretty young, so I don't remember their antics during that. Um, but I encountered Code Pink not only during the Kavanaugh hearings as, you know, big pro-abortion supporters, but also because uh, current Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema got her start as an activist with Code Pink, so did some digging. And it turns out these people are essentially un-American. They go everywhere. Everything they do is protesting anything that would be better for America, better for people in other countries, make their countries more like America. They hate it. That's what they exist to do is to to protest anything like that. So to see them actually helping the Maduro regime is just disgusting. We also seem to be having a stalemate here because Guaido can't rally enough people from the military to actually topple Maduro. Maduro keeps repressing the people. We keep telling Maduro to go. Uh, He doesn't go. We're not really willing to put troops on the ground. I don't think most Americans are probably in support of that right now. And so it it seems like we're just spinning the wheels here and uh, Code Pink might be uh, thriving a bit as a result of that. Yeah. And I mean, I think there there definitely is a stalemate in terms of, you know, what our government's going to decide to do. I would really hope not to see any kind of military involvement or anything like that. But uh, I just don't see, you know, based on all the reporting that I've seen, it's hard to know how anything, you know, what outcome is going to happen in Venezuela without some kind of 
external involvement to break up a situation. Code Pink, I think, is weighing in on exactly the wrong side of the spectrum. Code Pink, of course, I mean, they're so far left. They're technically anti-war, at least they claim to be. So that's why they want the Maduro regime to stay in power. But uh, I have a feeling that if uh, the leftists wanted to oust a more conservative regime, they probably wouldn't be as vocal about it. But I could be wrong. We'll see. No, I think that's probably the right read. All right. Let's go to our crazy martini now, Alexandra. And it was a busy, busy week last week in the abortion debate. We started off earlier in the week with Brian Sims and his social media uh, reports harassing uh, a senior citizen lady and then teenage girls who were prayerfully uh, protesting outside the Planned Parenthood clinic in Philadelphia. That led to the pro-life rally that you attended there on Friday. We also got the latest uh, state being Georgia to approve the heartbeat bill, meaning that uh, abortion is illegal once a heartbeat is detected. And as a result of the drama in Georgia, uh, we've got the sex strike. Alyssa Milano, I don't think she was the first one to come up with this, but she's certainly the most vocal and the most popular to come up with it. Here's her tweet from uh, May 10th. Our reproductive rights are being erased. Until women have legal control over our own bodies, we just cannot risk pregnancy. Join me by not having sex until we get bodily autonomy back. I'm calling for a hashtag sex strike. Pass it on. She got Bette Midler and a bunch of other uh, celebrities and other people on the left to go along with it. And, uh, Alexander, this is obviously pretty delicious to you and uh, others who are very active in, in chronicling what's happening in the abortion debate. Because now you've got folks on the left saying, hey, if you don't want an unwanted pregnancy, you might want to avoid the sex. It's amazing. I just I feel like all of feminism has just been building up to this moment. And here we are, you know, third wave feminism finds its fruition in agreeing with social conservatives. It's absolutely hilarious. I mean, she and Alyssa Milano's particularly unhinged. She spent the last couple of months calling for a total boycott of Georgia as a state, you know, not doing business in Georgia because of the heartbeat bill. Now she wants a sex boycott. So I, I'm not really sure what she thinks um, these different campaigns of hers are actually going to accomplish. But it, I think the most interesting part of this whole uh, conversation is that not only is she endorsing the reality that the best way to avoid an unwanted pregnancy is, you know, simply not to have sex, which is something the pro-abortion movement never concedes, will never acknowledge. So she's already violating their first premise. There are a lot of feminists upset with her for this who are saying, oh, you're, you're just giving into the idea that sex is just for men. So now feminists, there's internal division being caused by this. And I, I find it just very fascinating and enjoyable. <laughs> Why was Georgia the flashpoint? There's been other states that have looked at and even passed the heartbeat bill, Ohio being a very prominent one. Why did uh, all the venom of the pro-choice side come down on Georgia. My understanding is this: uh, the Georgia legislation is the most comprehensive, the kind of the longest piece of legislation. And I think it might be, I don't know if it's the only one, but it, it certainly defines uh, fetuses as legal persons. And so I think that's why um, it's particularly legally frightening to people who support abortion rights. And that might be one of the reasons why we got the comment from the lady on CNN last week about how if you're pregnant, you don't have a human being inside of you, which... Uh, is fun coming from the party of science. Alexandra, uh, you were also at the uh, the rally in Philadelphia uh, on Friday. What was the uh, big takeaway for you there? Oh, it was great. You know, local media was reporting over a thousand people there. I guess they had a helicopter and, and were doing a headcount from the sky. So it was great to see that kind of response for something planned in maybe four days. Um, and I think, you know, the big takeaway, they were a lot of people there were calling on Brian Sims to resign. That's probably not going to happen. The guy has now put his Twitter account on private. So clearly he's trying to move on from the entire um, debacle. But I think just seeing how all the people there were talking not only about how bad abortion is, but also talking about how it's bad for women. You know, not just we're not just killing children, but it's so bad for women who are told this is their only option. Um, and I think, you know, that message gets drowned out so often. So it, it was good to see that kind of on display there. 
First day in the books, Alexandra, of three. Hope you're uh, ready for uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. We look forward to that. Yep, looking forward to it. Alexandra DeSanctis of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget to visit our friends over at ZipRecruiter, ziprecruiter.com slash martini. And tune in again Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.